This is John Schwartzman, AFC, uh, the cinematographer on Jurassic World Dominion, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with John Schwartzman, ASC, the director of photography of Jurassic World Dominion. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. This episode of Go Creative Show is sponsored by Shotlister, the best shot list creation app for production in the business. Email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com for your free gift. We are so happy to have you. The film is awesome. It's like totally taking over the world right now. You, Top Gun has been bumped from the top with Jurassic World. That must make you feel good. That's for sure. You know, what makes me feel good is that people are going to see both movies. Exactly. Uh, I, I, you know, in addition to prepping a picture right now, I'm color timing at night and I'm with Stefan Sonnenfeld at Company 3 who color timed both Maverick and Jurassic. So I said to him, what does it feel like to have a billion dollars of worldwide gross, you know, come by next weekend? I said, you ought to feel good about that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and I think he I think he did. It's a, it's a very impressive thing to have the the top two movies, you know, in two and a half consecutive weeks. Oh, my God. I'm just glad people are going back to the theater. That's fantastic. Well, I will tell you, you know, you sort of forget, Ben. We're in a world now where, obviously, we we go with the ebbs and tides of COVID, and there are times when it seems like it's going away. I did a picture in the fall with John Lee Hancock, who I did The Highwaymen with, who I've done eight pictures with. We were in Connecticut in the fall, and pretty much in that part of the Northeast, there was no COVID to speak of. We were actually able to film without wearing masks, right? The first time in you know, two and a half years. By the end of the movie, Omicron had started to really rear its ugly head and we went back to masking. I hadn't been to a movie theater, a real movie theater, uh, until actually I went during the week because I knew there'd be no one, not as many people in the theater to see Maverick on a big screen. And then obviously the Jurassic World premiere at uh, the Grumman's Chinese Theater or the, mm. the Chinese Theater. Um was the first time I had really sat and realized, oh my God, the experience of seeing Laura Dern in a close-up at 35 feet high is so different than on, you know, a I look, I have a state-of-the-art OLED in my house, but it's still not the same experience. And maybe I've got very good color and I've got a high dynamic range and I've got good contrast. But what I don't have is scale. And you realize that most people, most I'm speaking for all, probably all cinematographers, when we go out and shoot, we're thinking about the big screen and we're thinking about scale. Scale is a part of what, of what, of how you choose to frame and shoot a movie, right? Um, and it was just really nice to go back to the theater. And because remember when I started Jurassic no one had heard of COVID, right? Mm. It was, and then it then it came on and and hit us really quick, and we shut down. I think it was March fifteenth, and they flew me home the next day with Chris Pratt and the American actors because at the time no one knew if the borders were going to be closed, right? Yeah. So we all were flown from London back to LA literally within twenty four hours, and then 
Fortunately for us on this movie, we were the first movie back, and especially the first big movie back. We're talking about, you know, eight or 900 people on the crew. If you talk about the model makers and the plasterers and the painters and everything else. And I will say that Pat Crowley, our producer, just did an incredible job of coming up with really the very first protocol on how a movie could go back to work. And we did that incredibly successfully. Not that it wasn't stressful. And we did have people testing positive from time to time, but we made it through that whole movie with no one actually getting sick. So that was a that was a great testament to um, the producers who were very aware of people's fears. But I think the moment you walked onto the set of Jurassic World, you probably felt like you were in the safest place you could possibly be because you were with a group of people that knew how to sort of isolate, although not everyone, people did go home to their families, but they understood the importance of being able to make this work. And I think we all felt that the set was the safest place you could possibly be because where else are people being tested either three or five times a week, right? So it was about as, as well um, as well done as you possibly could, especially given at that time, Ben, no one really understood COVID at all, except that a lot of people were dying. I mean, we were filming at a time in London when, you know, 2,000 people a day were dying. Mm. And, and we were able to pull it off. And I think pull it off in a way that uh, did not affect the movie at all. I mean, the only change we made was rather than first unit going to Malta, which was going to, we were going to go there. Second unit was going to film there for a while. And then we were going to go and kind of plug in Chris and Bryce to just certain things for maybe four or five days. We decided to build that back at Pinewood because the thought of traveling 400 people to Malta seemed like it was very risky at that time. Yeah. And I think, you know, every step of the way on this movie, and I, and I give them incredible credit now, especially as a Monday morning quarterback, uh, they did an incredible job. I cannot overstate really what I can only imagine the responsibility that they felt. And they, they did it just, you know, you couldn't ask for it. I, I, I wish the people that ran FEMA were as talented as these guys. Yeah. We had Ben Cutchins on the show talking about White Lotus around the time of COVID. And he had, I, I guess it's benefit and misfortune of having to film throughout COVID. But the reason I say benefit is because they started it after COVID had already begun and they were able to build a little bubble in order to shoot that series. And I'm curious, like, were you able to do something similar on your end to completely lock everybody in? Well, we couldn't lock everybody in like they could. So they, so he had two advantages. One, Hawaii, which at the time had very strict travel restrictions in, right? So you, yeah. should, you couldn't just go, I'm going to go to the Kahala Hilton and hang out on the beach. So they had that going for them. And then obviously they were uh, at that uh, resort on the North Shore um, and they bought the whole thing out because obviously nothing's open, right? Yeah. So we did a similar thing with the cast uh, the director and all of the hair, makeup, all the vanities that went with them. They rented out the Langley Hotel, which was about five minutes from Pinewood. So the other thing was it meant we had no turnaround issues with the actors. At the time, I had a house in Notting Hill. 
My wife had gone back to the States and wasn't going to come out because of COVID. So I just lived in my house and I felt that was incredibly safe for me. I didn't have anybody coming to clean. I took care of all that. And I had my, because I'm an American, they don't, the studio will not allow me to drive in England. So I had my driver who was also in a bubble go and do my shopping. So, you know, obviously with the HODs, they did that as, as well as they could. But remember, I'm in England. I've got an English crew. Most of them are going home. That said, kids aren't in school and everybody's terrified. So they were making bubbles no matter what. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was great. It was, it, look, we, by the time they did White Lotus, we had wrapped, right? So we were making it up as we went along, but to a high degree of sophistication. You know, the, the choices were always made on behalf of safety. Because if you didn't and somebody got ill, number one, we were too, we were too high profile. And I think we all realized that we were going to be the tip of the sword to bring the industry back into production. Yep. And, and we did it. Yep. Jurassic World Dominion is the third and final of the Jurassic Park series. Um, and you shot the first Jurassic World and now coming back for the third was there something different on this film that you weren't able to do the first time that just you were granted by more time, you know, different budget, different technology. Was there anything that you wanted to do, but couldn't and now can actually no. I mean, so remember, so, so of the three, uh, I didn't do the second one and Colin didn't do the second one because at the time we were prepping Star Wars, which ultimately did not happen for Colin. Right. So the plan was Colin was going to write and sort of produce from afar, number two, while we did Star Wars. And it was always his intention to do the third one. The Star Wars story, which everyone sort of knows or whatever, it just didn't happen. They they weren't happy with the way his script was going and he was replaced by J.J. Mm-hmm. Um, but we shot the first we shot the first one and the third one on film, both 65 millimeter and 35 millimeter. And that was partially on the first one because film was still, people were still using film. And also Colin felt like Jurassic Park movies are shot on film. Yeah, And me being a huge film guy, it was music to my ears, right? So we did the same thing on Dominion, right? We shot it on film. There's one sequence in the movie that's shot digitally. And that was only because Colin changed his mind about a light source in the scene in the caves and wanted to use just a a flambeau, a a flaming torch. And I said to him, I don't think I can use that as a source light for film, especially large format film, because you need more light for more depth of field. I said, can we shoot this on large format digital? And then we can, Sam can hold that torch and that'll be the only light source in the scene. And I said, what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the digital material. Once it's cut, I'll color time it. Then we'll scan it back out to film and rescan it in so that it is film per se. And also we'll have a complete cut negative of the movie. So other than that, we shot 65, 4 perf 35, which is what we did on, the, on Jurassic World. And on this one, just out of sheer luck, uh, 
at, at Pinewood Studios, and I cannot remember the name of the camera company that has a, a office there. They had two VistaVision Bocam cameras, which was a camera that ILM de- developed, and it's a very small VistaVision camera. And VistaVision is a a medium format uh, camera system that does that uses thirty five millimeter film, but it runs sideways. It runs in the same direction that film runs through a still camera. So you get a very you get a lot of negative, and we use we utilize that a lot because it was right there. No one was using it because no one was working. So we also utilized bow cams because we were one of the things that happened after the pandemic, and one of our big discussions were okay, we're going to come back. Do we continue shooting on film? Will the laboratory even be able to function? Yeah. Can they process 65 mil? The only place in the world that was processing 65 millimeter film was Photochem in Los Angeles. You've got a pandemic. Airplanes aren't flying. So we sort of thought, okay, well, we may not be able to shoot much more 65 when we get back to England post-pandemic because of just the infrastructure isn't there for us, right? The simple solution would have been to go full digital because then we, you know, you can basically set up a lab anywhere, but we chose not to. The, the Kodak lab at Pinewood stayed open. And what happened was they could process 35 mil. So that's when we pulled out the VistaVision camera because it was still 35 millimeter film. The only difference was rather than running through the camera vertically, it ran through the camera horizontally. And that gave us a, a sort of a large format or what you want to call medium format image uh, it, it, on 35 millimeter film. And that was that was huge. And you see it on the ice lake and you see it in the underground market where most of that stuff is all shot VistaVision. The other nice thing about VistaVision is I don't lose as much depth of field at the same stop. So for the technical people out there, a 50 millimeter lens in four perf 35, the equivalent field of view is an 80 millimeter lens in 65. Now you've got a larger negative area. So therefore you have less depth of field. So to carry the same depth, you need two more stops of light in 65 millimeter. Now, if you're outside during the day, that's not an issue, right? Generally speaking, when cinematographers go outside during the day, they're putting neutral density filters in because there's so much light. In a set like the dinosaur market that had, I think, uh, 1,600 par cans pounding down through the ceiling and 28 Dino lights. And I mean, it was a huge lighting setup. The idea of being able to get two more stops of light was daunting. But then by having the VistaVision camera, I didn't really have to be as concerned. I was carrying a similar amount of depth. That's interesting about the VistaVision. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes too, guys, so you can check it out as you're listening along. But I wasn't terribly familiar with it. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't really know much about it. But that's interesting to hear that it pulls the negative sideways, thus giving you kind of the appearance, well, more than the appearance, the actuality of a wider frame. Yeah, and it gives you basically this even more negative area than 65 does in a two-to-one format. Yeah. Just how it, the square fits into the, the square. Now, this division came out of that 50s when everyone was trying... Every, when the studios were afraid that no one was going to go to the movies, they were going to watch TV. So everybody was fighting for these widescreen formats. Cinemascope, which we now call anamorphic. Yeah. There was uh, Cinerama. There, Vista Vision was another format. 
right? That allowed you to use 35 millimeter film, but it turned it on its side. Uh, the last time I had used a VistaVision camera was on the rock for shooting plates. It became the go-to plate camera. There was a guy, a gentleman named Greg Beaumont, who worked at ILM, who <laughs> realized I can build a small, lightweight camera that we can take out to the Tunisian desert to shoot plates for Star Wars. If you, if you, I can't, I don't have a photo, but I can, anybody can look. 65 millimeter, the 65 millimeter lightweight camera, and it's literally called the lightweight camera, with a lens and a magazine, weighs 90 pounds, <laughs> right? Whereas the bow cam with a lens and a mag on it maybe weighs 25 pounds. So, you know, it, the, the only thing about the bow cam is it's not silent. So it's a noisy camera. So you use it for the wide shots. You use it for the big moves through the dinosaur market where you know there's going to be a lot of sound effects. And, you know, then you switch to your silent camera for all the tight close-ups. And that's kind of how we did it. If we knew we were doing something big and wide and we could get away with a noisy camera, we would use the bow cam, knowing that when we would go in for Bryce or Sam Neill or Laura or Jeff Goldblum or Chris Pratt, you know, we would then switch to the other cameras for all the dialogue. And it was, just a very, it was a clever, smart way to do it, to maintain the maximum image quality, which is what we were always about, right? It's Jurassic, it's, it's, part, of the, it's part of the Jurassic Park. We all pay homage to the first movie and you can't, you can't forget that. Every time you're setting up a camera and on this movie, we must have had more than 40 animatronic or puppeteered dinosaurs. So it wasn't as though you could forget it because I had eight guys under a table puppeteering these things, right? I mean, it was right there. It was like the cantina in Star Wars every day. It was, it really put everybody on their A game. It's easier to kind of go, okay, so they're going to put that creature in later and not think about, okay, maybe I, it's okay. Don't worry about that light over there. It doesn't matter. When you've got these creatures and you are really paying attention to how the light hits the silicone skin and, hey, you say to John Nolan, our creature, hey, can you put a little more slime on the back of their ears? It was, um, it was, a, it was a lot of work, you know, versus going, oh, don't worry about that. ILM's going to put them in later. Well, do you prefer to work with the puppets versus visual effects? There's no question that it's, it's a, it, look, it's a double-edged sword. You can move faster with visual effects. But what I can tell you is the actors prefer to have the puppets. The puppets also create shadows and things that are happy accidents. So there's no question I prefer working with the puppets, especially because all we're really there to do is make sure we can capture the best possible performance, right? So if, if Bryce or Campbell Scott reacts uh, and it's a real thing with the frills flapping, it's, it's more dynamic than if he's, if you're telling him to look at a laser pointer, you know, and we realized that on the first movie where uh, there was one scene, I can't remember what the dinosaur was, but uh, the, 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 the sort of modified T-Rex had killed all these dinosaurs and they go up and there's one dying in the field and, and Chris sort of says, well, he's not eating, he's hunting. Right. And that was, uh, that was Stan Winston's guys with this 10 foot head. And they were puppeteering it. And it was amazing to see how the performances were 
just amplified because of that. Yeah. Just having it in the room, it makes such a difference to performances. And also, I, I imagine that it's helpful for you just to get a better sense of scale. I mean, I know you do it with visual effects, but to have the real thing there must be helpful when you're framing your shots and lighting and everything. There's no question. It's really helpful for camera movement in particular. Uh, and also things happen. You know, the guys who are puppeteering the Giganotosaurus, which was 60 feet long, you know, and it was enormous, right? You, they say, okay, it's going to do this, but maybe it doesn't quite do it exactly. And that creates a, a sense of reality, you know, especially if the operator's handheld. So yeah, it was amazing. It was just, it was fantastic. I mean, it does take longer, you know, your things break or you tear a little bit of skin and they have to fix it, you know, but that's the time that you're spending on the front end is time that they don't have to spend on the back end, you know? So, but at the end of the day, everyone was always kind of in a state of complete amazement whenever we saw these things, right? I mean, it just was like, oh my God. And they looked amazing. They, they looked incredible. Yeah, and you had mentioned earlier that the this all the films in the series, but especially this one, pays homage to the first. I mean, we have Laura Dern, Sam Neill is back. I mean, the gang is back together. The band's back together in Jurassic uh, Jurassic World Dominion. What was that experience like for you, for the crew? Oh, it was amazing. We all look. We all, I you know, I'm not gonna tell you how old I was, but I was certainly you know in late teens, early twenties when Jurassic Park came out. Uh, so to get to first of all. Uh, I've worked with Laura before, and I know Laura. I love Laura. She's an amazing actress and just a great person. Uh, so just to get to work with her again, it's always a privilege. I have never met Sam or Jeff, but boy, they were, they were just, it was just great. I mean, it was one of those things like, all I could imagine is if we were doing this and there wasn't COVID, the amount of, so the one thing we could not do was you couldn't go, hey guys, come to, come to the camera truck at rap and we'll all have a glass of wine, right? Yeah. There was no fraternizing, right? But there were certainly days when you wished you could have all just sat around for an hour after rap and said, let's all have a glass of wine and just cherish the moment that we just had today with this and think about how exciting it was and how complicated. That was the one downside. The biggest downside was the sort of the the ability not to be able to sort of, you know, have that sense of fraternity and camaraderie, but to get to work with them was amazing. And they were all in this bubble at the Langley hotel. So, you know, what did they do at night? They all played the piano and sang. And so by the time they would show up on set every Monday, they had spent the whole weekend rehearsing. So ironically, the pandemic did not add any time to our movie. We did add a couple of days, but that was because uh, a couple of key people who we couldn't shoot without, you know, tested false positive. But in England, there were no false positives. If you tested positive on a Monday, you were out for 10 days, whether you tested negative for the next eight days, right? Mm -hmm. You could not test out. Now you can, right? Now we realize there are, there are false positive tests. I mean, in today's world in, in Hollywood, if you test positive and you're asymptomatic, you can go back to work in five days, right? Yeah. Because we, we know how to treat the disease. We have Paxlovid. People have to be vaxxed and boost, boosted. So the, the fear of, oh, my God, we may have somebody go to the hospital and die, is, that's, be, that's become something that really doesn't exist anymore. Um, but, you know, 
obviously back then we were very cautious and, uh, and it was just amazing. It was just, it was a great, it was great. I mean, you know, just to, to the rapport between Sam and Jeff was hysterical, you know? Yeah. And, and you had mentioned that there, what you didn't have the fraternizing like you, like you would have had, had there been no COVID. And I find that interesting because your director had been interviewed and was asked about the most memorable day of the entire project. Um, and he had said that it was the the moment where you were all crammed into a helicopter together. It was kind of like the last time the whole gang was together. I think it might have even been on your last day. Um, and it, I was curious, uh, that sounds like a, a great memorable day, but it made me curious what your most memorable day was, if if not the same. Uh, that, that was certainly one of them. I had a lot of them, but you have to understand, Ben, Colin remembers that day and I remember it starting to rain <laughs> and thinking, oh, my God. I, and we were at a part of the set where I could not get a big a big scrim over the top. So Colin is reveling with the actors and I'm saying, we've got to shoot. If the skies are going to open up. So I, you know, I don't get I, I the best way to describe the job of a cinematographer, especially on a very, very complicated, expensive movie is. You're a relief pitcher. You're a closer, but you're asked to pitch for nine innings, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great to, analogy. Yes. But you're not asked to just come in and pitch the three batters and, you know, and expected to get out of the inning in 14 pitches. It's like asking Mariano Rivera to come in and pitch for nine innings. And it's that way every day. So Colin may be at the monitor and having a great time. I'm standing out there looking at the clouds coming from the north going, okay, Colin, we've got to move. we got to get going because we're going to be in trouble in an hour, right? And the one thing is the, the sort of, on a big movie, you've got so many moving parts that things, it's very hard to change a, a shoot day, right? You, you, you're like an aircraft carrier. You can go but you don't turn quickly when you're on a very small movie. When I do movies with John Lee Hancock, if we get a weather report for the next day, that's not good for, for what we wanted. We're going to be outside and Oh, we don't want to shoot the funeral scene in the rain. Those movies are so contained that you can go, Hey, we're going to go into the high school tomorrow. This movie, you can't do that. Right. So there is an expectation that no matter what the conditions are, that I can make sure that we can film that day. And sometimes that's a very tall order and that can be very stressful, but that, that comes with the job. That's part of being the, the relief pitcher, you know? Um, and it, it does. So, so there, I don't have as many times to sit back and go, Oh, I mean, I do don't get me wrong. We, when we rap and I go, Oh, that was fantastic. Uh, certainly in the moment when I see shots and the camera move and I just go to call and that is that is bitching. We nailed it, you know, but uh, I don't get as much time to sort of enjoy those little moments as he does. But I certainly remember doing a scene in the cockpit of the plane uh, and we're all crammed in there. And it's right after we've come back from COVID. So are we allowed to do this? But again, we're all tested. The doors of the stage are open. There are fans blowing. It's, it's windy because we needed some wind and also to make it safe. And I just turned to Colin and he was in the, in the back of the fuselage was a little monitor. And I said, man, we're making a movie again and we're making it just like we used to, you know, 
We're not in spacesuits. I said, this is great. I yeah. know we're going to be able to get through this. Let's take a quick break and talk about Shotlister. Um, we've got the founder here, Zach Lipovsky, who's also a filmmaker and knows a little bit about production and filmmaking, that's for sure. So Shotlister is obviously a shot list creation app for production, but it does so much more. And I wanted to give you an opportunity now to tell us about one of the things that you love so much. What, what is one of the many things that our audience should know about Shotlister? Sure. I mean, like you said, it can build shot lists and, you know, that's something that Excel can do and people have been doing for hundreds of years is build a shot list. But what it really can do that kind of is a game changer is take those shots and put them into a schedule. And that really starts to open up some amazing things where it allows you to realize, oh, we need to do this shot before this one because we're going to need time to change the camera over. And basically allows you to go through a lot of the thinking way before you get to set, which can be really helpful. Lining up and organizing all of your shots and allowing certain, allocating certain amounts of time per shot is just such a game changer. And it makes you look so pro on set. Yeah. That's Definitely. the name and of the game. And it's really helpful for talking with your crew. You you can show your estimates to your DP and he'll go, oh no, this is going to take an hour, not 15 minutes. <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, well, that's good to know. While you're doing that, I'll be doing this. And it just sort of really helps communication that way. So ShotListers mobile apps are free. So you can start using ShotLister right now, wherever you are. But there's also a macOS version and a subscription-based ShotLister Pro that you obviously have to pay for. But go creative show listeners, get one of them for free simply by just emailing gocreativeshow at shotlister.com and telling them which one you want. You can either say, I want the macOS version of ShotLister or I want a year of ShotLister Pro. Whatever you want, whatever you ask for, you're going to get it for free by emailing them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com. Talk about a deal. Thank you, Zach, for coming on. Thank you. One of the biggest differences between, you know, Jurassic World that you shot the first one and you shot this now new one, Dominion, is the dinosaurs are now out in the world. The, we, are, we now have dinosaurs among us. And because of that, you have a lot of action scenes and a lot of just shots in general with these dinosaurs now out in the city, running through the streets of Malta and going all over the place. So um, I'd love to hear from you what changed in your cinematography or how did you approach things differently now having these giant you know, dinosaurs among us in the world. Well, one of the things that was interesting was that you say that part of it was I, we gave cameras to people because part of it is it looks like iPhone footage. It looks like dash cam footage. So on purpose. So there's a great shot of a little girl running around in the, in, in a field that's Colin's daughter. Right. And he shot no it on the iPhone. So part of it was, um, for us to not do that stuff. And I mean, we obviously reviewed it, but I just, I would say to the loader, hey, if you're going to go to Hyde Park tomorrow, do you mind just imagine, you know, a triceratops is going through, just see, you know, and so, and some of it was staged and some of it was um, just sort of found footage, you know, and that's how, because at this point, I think in Colin's mind, this has been going on for a couple of years. I mean, it's a nuisance. It's look, I live in Southern California. This is going to be the time of year when you're going to hear about mountain lions coming down into people's yards because they need water, right? So somebody will call and say, there's a mountain lion drinking out of my pool. Uh, you know, think of it like that, but times 10. 
Um, so, and, and with respect to the exterior multiple stuff, that was all done by Patrick Loungeway, who's been my second unit director of photography on a lot of movies. And he was on uh, Jurassic, Park, uh, Jurassic World and Jurassic World 2 and 3. He's actually done all three. Um, so he knows what to do, you know? And also we had a device <clears throat> on this movie called NCAM. So with an iPad Pro, which I'm plugging now, so hopefully Apple will give me one of the next one for free. <laughs> Before we even started the show, we were talking about iPad Pros. Well, it's, it's you are a man of my heart. I'm also a big Apple, Apple aficionado. Well, but the thing is, there's a couple of things. One, so there's a program I'm going to give a shout out to Nick Sadler called Artemis, which is essentially a viewfinder program that allows you to put the type of camera you're using in and pick your lens set, and then you can use your iPad as a viewfinder which is easier than having a lens viewfinder for scouting because you're not carrying a box of lenses around. Plus, it will you can take a picture and it'll record your GPS location, time of day, direction you're looking. So it's a pretty incredible tool. With that, ILM built this program that would couple with that. So if I sat in Malta and I said, okay, this is the scene where this dinosaur, where the raptor's running through the square... I could pan the camera and the raptor would be animated in it. Wow. And this is the end cam that you're talking about? So so when they were lining this stuff up, they would go. And if we weren't shooting film, but if we were shooting digital, ILM could have plugged that in to the monitor that the operator was working off of. That he could have like, and I think it was Jim Cameron that invented this technology on Avatar. And it's only gotten better and better and better as as memory has gotten bigger and as computer chips have gotten faster. Mm. But we would sit there with David Vickery and I'd say, I think I think the dinosaur is going to be over there. Right. And he go, no, a little more like this. And, you know, because he had animated the whole sequence. Yeah. So it was a very, very, very handy tool. Now, it didn't mean we had to stick to it because he could also change the path. But it gave us a place to go, and, and and for when we didn't have uh, animatronic dinosaurs, which first unit pretty much only shot animatronic dinosaurs, it gave second unit a real advantage to to your set, which is scale. Because I can remember on the first one, what we used was a giant cutout on a very long pool cleaning pole to approximate the height. Right. And we had picked this beautiful lychee nut forest in Kauai for the scene where the gyro ball comes to a rest and gets bounced around. Only to realize that the the T-Rex, the modified T-Rex wouldn't fit in there. It was too big. Right. But we didn't want to lose the location. So we went to Tim Alexander and said, can you scale it down for this? And he's like, of course I can. So, you know, you're trying to maintain as much reality as you can. But we weren't going to let that leaching at forest go. You know, make, can you make them four feet shorter? No one will know. <laughs> one of those, one of those kind of almost looks like found footage kind of scenes, and perhaps this may not be the one of those moments. But is that um, scooter guy kill scene that has somehow taken on a life of its own in social media? People are obsessed with the scooter guy kill scene. First of all, well, that, so that, what's your reaction was, to the whole world kind of becoming obsessed with the scooter guy now? I think it's hysterical, and God knows I'm, I'm, I, there's enough scooter guys who have almost crashed into me on sidewalks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shout out to to you know 
watch where you're going, buddy. Yes. Um, and I mean, again, but you know, that's a complicated stunt. I believe that he was on a ratchet. I mean, that's not, you know, that's Patrick Loungeway and Dan Bradley, who was our second unit director for the Malta portion, you know, coming up with these beats that are just both, you know, terrifying and hysterical at the same time. And I think that's where these movies have such a good balance. Just, just when you're about to go, like, I'm exhausted, somebody kind of cracks a joke. <laughs> I love that. Let's talk about a couple of specific scenes in the film that are really getting a lot of buzz on social media. And ever since the trailer, honestly, people have been loving some of these clips. The first one I want to talk about is where Claire is sort of just under the surface of the water, where the dinosaur is coming right up to the to the surface there. It's in the trailer. Everybody loves it. It's really beautifully shot. Um, I'd love to hear from you the way that you achieve that. Okay, so that was, you know, again, I've been doing this for a long time and I I knew technically how to do it. So <clears throat> first of all, that's at a that, that location is called Black Park. It's right behind Pinewood Studios. Back before Pinewood was Pinewood, it used to be a big, what they call an estate. It was like a big farm and it got converted and split up. So Black Park is still a, a park where people go. It's huge. Uh, and Star Wars shoots there and we shot there. And it's it's very convenient. You can literally, there's a gate that you can walk out the back of Pinewood and be in Black Park. So wow, that's so crazy. Where, we picked where we were going to be based on the sunlight travel. And then I knew that Colin wanted her to climb into this pond. So we excavated that. And, you know, and like in everything in Hollywood, we dug it out. We lined it with three mil plastic. We treated the water so it was safe and we filled it up. And then I designed the length of the pond so that we could start with the camera on a techno crane, which is a telescoping crane arm. Essentially, it, it's an arm that can extend or retract. Mm -hmm. And it's got about 37 feet. The 50-foot crane has 37 feet of movement. So I, we designed where the base of the crane was going to go, knowing that we could get all the way over the water and five or six feet up the path and be able to go with Bryce as she crawled, then pull back over the water. And then when she went underwater, we would dip the camera down. And then when she came back up, we would come up with her all in one shot. Now, the only tricky thing is cameras, you can't put a camera in the water, right? Cameras in water are, that's no bueno. Um, so they, Panavision makes a lens system that's kind of like a, what would be the right word? A periscope, right? It, 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 it comes out straight and then it makes, you can turn the end of it so that it's, it's 90 degrees. So basically what you're now doing is pointing the camera straight down. The lens extends about two and a half feet below the front of the camera. And then the, then the end of the lens turns. So it's pointed straight again. Mm. And then Panavision for lack of a better term makes what's called a condom for it. That's made out of neoprene rubber with a glass filter that you can slip over it. So you can put that in the water. You, I mean, I'm sure people have seen commercials with Michael Phelps swimming where they go from above to below. And that's the device you use. So that's essentially how we did it. And, uh, and Bryce, God love her. She is game for everything, right? She, the, the harder and the more physical it is, the more she wants to do it. She doesn't want anybody doing anything for her unless it's, you know, they say to her, look, you, we can't have you jump off of one rooftop to the other because of insurance. She'll do everything. 
Uh, and it's I love that shot. I mean, look, it's a bit of a shout out to Apocalypse Now. Um, but my only thing I would say is, and I know it's a, it's one of those things like, what? I almost think it's too cosmetically pretty. I mean, Bryce has the most incredible skin. And I've known her for a long time. I've known her since she was like 13 years old when I shot a movie for her father. So not that I don't take care of all of the actors, but I, you know, when she's in front of the camera, I'm always going to make sure that there's not a shadow where I don't want it. And on that shot, when she comes up, I almost worry, God, does she look too pretty with those green eyes? But I do love the shot. I love, I love her intensity. You know, I mean, it's not just the camera. It's the camera and her doing a dance. And that's the part of cinematography that's so exciting. The moment you really notice the shot, you've taken yourself out of the movie for that five seconds. When it all comes together and you think about it afterward, you go, that was really cool. That means you've done something right. I, I can certainly make shots all day long with shafts of light coming through windows and silhouettes walking in the foreground where you go, that's really beautiful. But the moment you say that's really beautiful, you've suddenly lost the narrative, right? So you, you're trying to walk that line. We all, every cinematographer does that. Does it bother? Does that bother you? Like when you're, I mean, when you're doing something giant like this, you know, you have big celebrities, you want to make everybody look amazing. That's, that's all good. Um, but do you ever feel like you're kind of, you know, th there's a battle between what you want to do or what you should do in a situation like that? No, I, it's one of those where that was just a perfect storm and she happened to look so great that day. Cause I wasn't, I didn't do anything. I think I was in the water next to the camera. Cause I, I tend to be next to the camera, especially with a film camera. Cause it was how I was trained. And I look, I stand next to the lens and look at the actors with my eyes, right? Mm. I don't sit at the monitor, especially because the monitor on a film camera is an old school, low resolution video assist on digital cameras. I will go look at the monitor to make sure everything's right. But then once we're rolling, I don't ever stay at the monitor. I, I stand, if, if Donald Sutherland is five feet in front of me, why do I want to watch him on TV? That's Donald Sutherland, right? So you're not monitor. Like when you're watching takes, you're not, you're watching them just looking at the actual take, not a monitor. Correct. I stand wow. right next to the camera on every take. And generally I'm holding a little piece of white styrofoam. We call it a bounce board. And I'm just manipulating it to see if I want to get an extra sparkle in their eyes. Now, part of that comes from the, my experience of doing this forever and on all the, all the movies, all the Bay movies, everything else. The other thing is that, um, you know, my stepmother is an Academy Award nominated actress. My brother, Jason, is an actor. I, my cousin, Nicolas Cage, is an actor. I come from a world with a lot of actors and I understand their insecurities as well. And I know that it gives them a lot of, they feel more secure if, I, if somebody, if I'm right there with them, they know that I'm really paying attention. And obviously the more comfortable the actors feel, the better they're going to be. And the, the bottom line is, I don't know when I'm going to get to work with Jeff Goldblum again. I want to be right next to Jeff Goldblum. I can remember as an aside, I was doing a picture with Rob Reiner, with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. And Rob Reiner said to me, why aren't you back here at the monitor? And I said, and Jack was right there in the bed. I said, because Rob, 
when am I ever going to get to be five feet away from Jack Nicholson? I can go watch it on TV when I do the DVD. I said, I want the experience of being right here. And it's just one of those things. It's one of the great privileges of my job is that I get to do that. And I, and I don't want to miss out on that opportunity. You are, just you watching, get, are you watching playbacks or before you move to the next shot? I, yes, of course. I'll look and say, hey, how was take four? Let me go yeah, see yeah. that. But for the first three or four takes, I'm not, you know, and, and, and Ian Fox, my camera operator, and I have done 20 some odd movies together. He's operated on all the Jurassics. He, he operated on Jurassic 2 as well. So he knows Colin. He knows me. If he's not happy, he's going to be the first one to say, I need another. So, you know, um, there's a lot of familiarity. We're a big family. We know each other. We've all worked together. We know what the mission is. And I know that I want to be out front. I just, that is how I work. I, I don't want to be in a tent or behind a floppy flag if I can avoid it. Yeah. Because like you said, it's playback. I can always go back and check it, but I want to be there in the moment. I want to talk about Biosyn and the look of that sort of white interior that uh, I, I know you're you know, I'm sure you were involved in some of the production design or at least collaborated with them. But can you talk to me about the way that you approached that white interior of Biosyn? And also, are the rumors true that it's taking nods from Apple Park? Is this like the evil Apple? Is that, I mean, it really, it looks like it. Well, there's no question that um, the Cupertino facility, the headquarters, is a gorgeous building, right? I mean, it, Johnny Ivey designed it, and I don't think anybody would argue that Johnny Ivey is the uh, Raymond Lowy of our time in terms of an industrial designer, right? I mean, Raymond Lowy was the great industrial designer who designed the Coke bottle and the Toastmaster toaster and a bunch of things. Uh, Johnny Ivey is, an, I mean, all you have to do is hold an Apple product, right? Uh, so I don't, look, they had designed that before I started the movie, but it's an obvious uh, nod to Apple in terms of that, you know, their design. The issue again, so the funny thing is like a biosyn, the, the sets, which were beautiful, and Colin wanted them because look, it's a laboratory. It's going to be very clean. He wanted the lines clean. We all like, one of the things that's really nice, Ben, is circles and curves. Camera lenses love that, right? So all the hallways had kind of a curve radius on it. The other thing is, if you put a radius on a hallway, you, you tend not to see where the end of it is. So the audience's mind imagines it goes a lot farther as opposed to just having double doors at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's just, and, and circles just frame up nicely because they become kind of elliptical. Um, but one of the challenges again was we were shooting film. So again, film versus digital um, requires at the same, again, I'm not going to get technical. You're shooting at a, Two eight four split, which is kind of a common interior stop. It has a, it has enough depth of field, but not too much, and it's not wide open where only someone's face is in focus and everything else turns to mush. And obviously, we're spending a lot of money on these sets, so we want to see them right? exactly. And so the part of it is you want to carry some depth. So I think Colin kept saying to me, "No, no, I want more depth of field." So okay, let's shoot it. We'll shoot these interiors at a four, five, six split. A four or five, six split on a digital camera that's rated at ISO 1600 or at 800 
is significantly less light than a film camera that I rate at 320. It's literally half the amount of light. And also one of the things was I knew the way we were going to shoot that, all the lighting had to be built in. It had to be what we call in the business practical lighting. You can see the light sources. But, you know, it's 2020, 2019, 2020. Britain is still part of the EU, I believe. They haven't left yet. So incandescent light bulbs, regular light bulbs, are outlawed in Europe, right? So everything has gone LED. You can't even get them. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So part of one of the reasons why Britain wanted to leave was they were tired of Brussels telling them what they could and couldn't do. So, so now we're using LED lights, which don't get me wrong, are a wonderful thing, but they don't have the same amount of brightness or punch. I can't replace a, <clears throat> I can go from a 75 watt bulb to a 150 watt bulb in 10 seconds. Hey Lee, can you take the 211 out and put a 212 in? Um, the LEDs only go to a certain wattage. So part of the concern was, okay, so let's put the brightest LED ribbon and whatever we're coming up with in and let's pray we get there, you know, and we did, but you know, the world is moving towards digital. The way productions are mounted with LED lighting is moving towards digital. Uh, I don't have an issue with that, but certainly certain sets that are lit all with LED lighting become more complex uh, with a film camera. You know, the big sets are easy. I'm lighting them the way I would have lit the rock. You know, if you had seen, if you'd walked up in the grid on top of the dino market set, you know, it was, it was a lot of light. It was very warm up there because of the heat. Um, but it was classic old school movie lighting. Uh, but the sets where it's a laboratory where, you, where there's no place to hide a light. And also the way that Colin loves to do what cinematographers hate to do which is to start looking in one direction and then turn and look the other. <laughs> I was going to say 360 sets. Or- he loves it. And, and he loves to do it. And, and because he knows that I go, oh, God, but I pull it off, he likes to do it even more. And he especially <laughs> likes to do it at night, which is where it's really difficult. Um, but so I knew that I had to prepare myself for all those inevitabilities. So with Kevin Jenkins, the production designer, who did a brilliant job, we figured out ways to kind of, build the lighting in that would work for film. Because I kept saying to these guys, I understand, you know, the concept art, but what you have to understand is this is not a car. This is not a, a, this is not a Tesla. This is a 1963 Cadillac Eldorado that gets seven miles to the gallon, right? I mean, we are using very old school technology that is still the most beautiful technology out there, but it requires more stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and they, they everybody rose to the challenge. I mean, look, going to in the beginning, going to Canada out there in uh, northern British Columbia with film cameras, the only issue was the cold. Right. We had plenty of light. So that was great. Now we come back to London. We're building small sets and things like that. Uh, we're utilizing the the um, the resources that are available and just crossing our fingers that I don't have to hide an inky or a tweeny somewhere in a set that I can, that I can let the set light itself. Now, I know we started a little bit late today. Do you have a hard out or can, can we keep you for another five minutes or so? Yeah. No worries. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, I I would like to say the one set that was really cool to do was the locust uh, room set. Ah, why? 
Well, because what we needed to do was create the sense of shadows that would come from when the locust murmurated. Colin kept sending us all these pictures of, I think it's swallows that murmurate, now they fly around. So once they get upset and they fly around with, um, with Sam and Laura in that room, I needed to create the interactive lighting. Mm. So ultimately what we did was we hid a bunch of rock and roll, what they call movers, up above the top of the set. And then we had specific, what they call gobos, shadow patterns made up and we went through a whole bunch of testing to figure out what would look the most like uh, locusts the size of Air Jordans flying in front of a light source. And, and you know, that came on on cue. The other thing was, because the, the, the locusts change color as they get agitated, Colin wanted a color change in there as well as the light would bounce off of their, off of their exoskeletons, which was, would have been reality. So it was really fun. It was a really complicated thing to kind of figure out how to do. And then once we did it, it was a case of just hitting the button, you know. But that there's a lot that goes on in a scene like that that you sort of don't realize. Yeah, were there any practical effects in the space with them flying around to give them to give you some realistic shadows or or just something no, to work off? Of? of there was nothing flying, but certainly the when they go to pull the giant bug out that's yeah. an animatronic bug yeah right i mean they were creepy they were you know they were the size of a of god rest his soul kobe bryant's tennis shoe you know yeah yeah they were big it, it's interesting to me to i mean watching that scene you really don't as crazy as it is you don't feel the cgi in that scene like you do with the dinosaur scenes for some reason you just are like you just accept it i don't know maybe it's because they're moving so fast or something but it's so realistic looking I think so. But so the thing is, it would have been, I, I wouldn't say impossible because nothing's impossible, but when you, when you see the shadow patterns moving around in there, that would be a very challenging thing for a visual effects company to do, especially with actors moving through the space. Yeah. So the fact that I could do that gave David Vickery a background to kind of animate off of, you know, and I felt like, God, we, we, again, <clears throat> No one realizes how much work goes into things that you think are so simple. Uh, and that's the beauty of it when no one really notices it. Um, so that was one scene that I think we were all particularly proud of. Um, it worked out really well. And then <coughs> obviously we, we walked away from that set and they basically repurposed a car wash uh, machine that, you know, washes cars with uh, propane jets in it. And we mounted cameras and fireboxes for that whole sequence where Dodson burns it. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because not only do you have the fire coming into the room and, and you know, getting all over them, but they now, once they escape, are flying fireballs all over the place. And I, I wanted to learn more about the way that you affected that in the lighting. Like, d d you must have had something floating around to kind of give off that light. Well, we did a bunch of things. We we had these things which were called sun strips, which were basically these lights that Lee Walters, my gaffer, built that we would put into a flicker generator to create a fire effect. And then I had the effects guys setting Duraflame logs on fire and dropping them down on wires. No I mean, literally, way. Duraflame logs. 
<laughs> I love when it's the sim when it when it's an unusually simple fix to a problem yeah, like, I, like I, that. I, it wasn't Duraflame because they don't have those in England, but it was the English equivalent, and they would take the you know they cut the Duraflame log into pieces, and we would they would be up on a, a lift, and they would literally puppeteer them down. Oh, hey, make them drop faster, and they just they were like on a fishing rod, and they would you know. So if we had a few that were in the foreground that were interactive, uh, David Vickery and ILM would put the rest in the background. Oh, that's so, yeah, so cool. Was, I mean, look, it's the simplest things. And when you've done 40 some odd movies, like I have all of which are, or most of which are very big, you get the, it, I come in with the advantage of having worked with a lot of really great people all over the world, right? Great effects people, whether it's the, uh, John Frazier and Jim Schwamm or the Corbalds here who are probably, I think, the best that I've ever worked with. Um, you, but what you do is you kind of, you're always keeping your peripheral vision open going, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to have to remember that. And sometimes I would go to them. And I think I was one that said to them because I think we had used Duraflame logs a lot on Pearl Harbor, you know, for like fire stuff. And I said, hey, can we just use those, you know, like, I don't know what they're made out of anymore, but, and they were like, oh, I think they make them out of coffee grinds here with every, you know, with fire gel on them. And so essentially, you know, there was guys fishing with flaming logs. <laughs> That's awesome. I'd love to see a picture of that. Hopefully there's something in the behind the scenes that we can see. I'm sure there is. I mean, the reality is, so one of the big differences has been, and this is not a, I'm not whinging about this, but when you do these big movies, uh, I don't have, like somebody said, can I send you? I have no behind the scenes footage of myself. At some point, maybe Universal will send me a file with pictures of me standing next to Colin, but I don't have anything. I, I mean, I there are, I have storyboards, but if I send them to you to look at, they, they'd say, oh, well, you broke your NDA. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We're now in a world in which <clears throat> we're both good and bad. I can't, you know, I can't show, I have, do I have photos on my iPhone of me on the set? Yes, but they're not, I can't distribute them. You know, yeah. whereas back in the day of The Rock, I could have sent anybody anything. No one really, <clears throat> no one cared as much. Yeah, it's certainly different now. In our last couple of minutes, I just want to um, uh, bring up a question from someone in our audience. Capture Video Productions on Instagram wanted to know the lens choices that you made and if that decision uh, relied heavily on visual effects or not. What were your lenses? How did you get to that decision? So the lenses, ironically, were the same lenses I used on the first Jurassic World, hmm. which were a, a set of uh, Primo lenses from Panavision, which was a very popular set of lenses. The Primo lenses were made out of out of Leica glass, but they were Panavision lenses. And then I had Dan Sasaki, the cheap lens designer at Panavision, um, tweak them in a certain way. And they were tweaked originally because I had shot Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And I knew that in Hawaii, you have a lot of contrast. You have dark jungles and very bright clouds. And believe it or not, lens designers can change the amount of contrast that lenses have. There's a lot you can do to sort of Sweeten the lens for whatever your uh, application is. And the thing is, we loved the way those lenses look <clears throat> so much. Sorry, Ben. Um, that um, I said to Dan, I want those same sets of lenses. With respect to visual effects, the answer was no. David Vickery always said, tell the story, I'll worry about the visual effects. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that, oh, as the dinosaur is walking forward, we didn't boom down to make sure that he 
left the frame. And certainly <laughs> when we had the real dinosaurs, the real animatronic dinosaurs, we used them to frame on. So yes, they did in, in, they did influence the lens choices, but really and the lens choices were made, were decided by how to best tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the film is out now. Jurassic World Dominion. I mean, it has, like we said at the beginning, taking over the top spot. I mean, it's such a fun movie. It looks amazing. You guys did such an incredible job. It must feel nice to just not only have this be one of the big features that bring people back to the theater, um, but also just to, you know, put a nice cap on such an incredible franchise. It's great. Look, it's a it's an honor to have been a part of the franchise. Uh, you know, I, I am I, I've had a very blessed career, Ben, and don't think for a moment I take anything for granted. You know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to get to go to work and stand in the rain until four o'clock in the morning. Sometimes, right? I mean, there's not. There are times when you just want to go home, but then you think, "Oh my God, look what I'm getting to do!" Right? I'm getting to tell Colin to hurry up get those actors in that helicopter because it's about to pour and this is the last shot of the movie, you know? And uh, it's, it's a, look, it's an incredible, I've had an incredible ride. I've been very, very blessed to be as successful as I have. And I really still love the job, you know? And I think it probably comes through in the way we chat, you know? I mean, I really have a passion for it. I love the idea of a group of people, a village coming together to do this. It's an incredible, uh, you build incredibly close relationships. The pandemic certainly changed the dynamic, but like I said, it didn't break it, right? <clears throat> People still have the same passion and they still go to work wanting to do the best they can do. I mean, one of the things about people working in the motion picture industry is you get the best of the best, whether it's a guy who's painting uh, scales on a Therizinosaurus, or it's the guy holding the boom pole who never seems to get in the shot, right? And you'd be a fool if you didn't stop at least once a day and look around and just admire the skill level around you and the privilege that it is to get to go to work with people like that every day. What a great place to end. And your enthusiasm is infectious. And I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Um, John Schwartzman, of course, we'll put a link to everything in the show notes so you guys can check it out. But uh, we are already excited for your next appearance. So whatever your well, next project be, is, we want you back. That's the school for good and evil. There you go. Charlize Theron. I don't know when it comes out, but I think in the fall. Well, hopefully right around that time you'll be back on you'll be back on this show. We really appreciate it, John. Thank you so much. All righty, Ben. I want to give a huge thank you to John Schwartzman ASC for coming back on the show to talk to us all about Jurassic World Dominion. This guy's work is amazing. He's been doing it forever, and uh, we are so lucky to have him. So thank you, John, for coming on. We're also lucky to have Shotlister as a sponsor of Go Creative Show. We love those guys. Shotlister is the best shot listing application for production, hands down. There's just, that's it. That, that's what it is. And uh, if you email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com, you can get a free one-year subscription to Shotlister Pro. So please take advantage of that. I also want to encourage you to subscribe subscribe to us on YouTube where we post our full interviews as well as show shorts that are enhanced with behind-the-scenes photos and videos. Uh, so it's a great way to experience all that is Go Creative Show. 
I want to thank Connor Crosby for producing the show. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, Dave Siegel over at Siegel Sound for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we'll see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.